2: All right, Liz Wheeler Show, episode 421, take one. Hannah-Claire Brimlow is with me today on the show. Hannah-Claire is a writer at timcast.com. You probably recognize her because the last couple times that I've appeared on Tim Poole's uh, IRL show, she sat right next to me. She's a regular cast
1: member on IRL. Hannah-Claire, thank you for joining me. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be sort of in, in your neck of the woods, so to speak, and be on your show. That's right.
2: That's right. Cause it's been, it's been opposite the other couple of times. So I had a fun idea for us today. Uh, instead of talking about news of the day, I thought we would talk about what, what people in our industry in media and politics and culture often do, um, off camera. And that is kind of compare and contrast controversial opinions. It's sort of, it's sort of actually like what university campuses were supposed to be, where you're supposed to take edgy positions and kind of debate and dissect them. Mm -hmm. Of course, campuses aren't like that anymore, but I thought it would be fun if we compared and contrasted our controversial opinions. So just for the audience's edification, what Hannah-Claire and I did to prepare for this before the show is I wrote five of my most controversial opinions. Hannah-Claire wrote five of her most controversial opinions. We did not look at each other's list. I have no idea what's on Hannah's list. She has no idea what's on mine. And I thought that we would compare. I don't know if they're gonna be similar, maybe we'll disagree with each other, but I thought it would be fun to discuss. So let me lead off, because I think once you hear this one you will, it, you will feel uh, no qualm about sharing edgy opinions because this is, this is okay. perhaps my edgiest opinion. My edgiest opinion is that people who took the mRNA, COVID jab, were wrong. Not only were they wrong, they should now be ashamed of themselves for having done that, and they need self-reflection on why they were so gullible because the information existed back then,
1: they should have known better at the time. Am I wrong? I agree with you. I would say 90%. I mean, I think the hysteria around the jab was sort of insane. And it is strange to me that we were, you know, this country founded by rebellious people, yet the default question when you said, oh, I'm not getting the vaccination was, but why don't you care about this, that, and the other? Why don't you want to get it? I mean, where is the free thought in all of this? Uh, I don't know if I'd go so far to say they should be ashamed. I do think that there was a lot of fear mongering. And I know people who got the jab because they felt like they would be to blame for their loved one's death which of course is hysteria but on the other hand i'm empathetic to the terror that you could feel especially in a country where getting medical bills is uh, essentially a financial death sentence you know i i i would not envy being any of these people who don't feel as though their bodily autonomy is uh, more important than the potential debt that they could go into
2: well, you're not wrong when you say that you feel empathy for people who are coerced. I mean, my family was in the position, my husband's a medical provider. He lost his job over a COVID wow. vaccine mandate. But the only reason he was able to do that is because we are fortunate enough to be in the financial position that we're secure enough that he could walk away from that. I understand that there are people who aren't. And I know this is a harsh opinion. I think it. my, my opinion is based on this collective reaction that conservatives and Republicans have where they excuse their bad opinions at the beginning of the pandemic by just saying, well, nobody mm-hmm. knew what the facts were. No one really knew. And I don't quite believe that. I think that if you were a discerning person, you could determine right from the get-go that the World Health Organization, Tedros, Fauci, the case fatality rate, all these things weren't weren't true. Children weren't dying right from the get-go. And so I don't right. quite buy into the whitewashing that like, okay, your, your decision is totally excused. and. You guys can send me, everyone watching and listening, you can send me all the angry emails and justify it. I, I am, like Hannah Claire, empathetic to a certain extent, but I I just, I don't know. I can't get past the the fact that it's like, well, there was
1: information that you could have used to be able to tell at the beginning, and a lot of people didn't. For sure. And also, if people need to email you and justify their opinion, they obviously don't feel very secure in your decision, right? If I have to argue to you online that this something that you had nothing to do with is a good call, then obviously... I am sort of insecure in what I what I chose to do. I mean, I think the reality is that people who got the mRNA vaccine took a risk. And look, sometimes that's how science works. And you get to be the, on the front run of a uh, on the front line of a great thing. But Sometimes that's a terrible idea and you shouldn't have done it. And in this case, I do, I agree with you. I think that there is a level of accountability that needs to be had, right? You can't look back and say like, oh, well, we didn't stop COVID or whatever we were supposed to do with the vaccine. I honestly have lost track of that, that end goal uh, because you guys didn't get the vaccine. No, the vaccine was not effective and you guys took a risk. And in my opinion, might have poisoned yourselves and i just think that that's ridiculous and i'm i like i said i have empathy but i'm not going to pretend like there was no choice in this you ultimately decided to go and get the vaccine i mean do you remember the phase when they were like come get a chick-fil-a uh, gift card if you if you'd like to uh, uh, get the vaccine we had to bribe people to do it and if that means today they need to email you and say no it was a good call then they are just as uh in need of affirmation and incentive as they were before and that's the dangerous part
2: and by the way, guys, I do like your emails, even the ones where you're contradicting me. Sometimes those are the most interesting ones, so send them along. All right, that's my number one most controversial opinion. Hit
1: me with yours, Hannah-Claire. Okay, I loved this idea, by the way, except all of my opinions are extremely rational and not controversial. Everyone should think like me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe that's my controversial opinion. No, my first one is, and you know, I realize that there are going to be some some cons here, but... I think the right needs to embrace reality TV if they really want to win the culture war. I think that we have these moments where we see it, because if I say, when was the last time you saw a conservative family on television? I know what you're going to say. And it's 19 kids and counting. It's the Duggars. And that is not the vibe, you know? (laughs) I think we need to be, in some ways, pursuing whoever occupies the space of trashy reality television. Obviously, I hope you guys aren't trashy. I hope you guys don't have your drama out. But, you know, one of my favorite segments that you have done recently is talking about how the Kardashians, you know, there is the drama, there is the glitz, but ultimately they are selling family. And I think there are moments when uh, conservative leaning people could occupy this space. I mean... I did not watch it, but I know what happened in this season of Vamber- Vanderpump Rules simply by existing on Instagram in my age demographic. Where is the right lean media company to occupy the space and subtly see- sneak in better values to culture? This is the tool that we don't have. No, this is fascinating. First of all, this is an idea
2: you should pitch to Tim because your your guy's house where you film seems like the perfect place for a reality TV oh, show, man. a right-leaning yes, reality It'll be like The <laughs> Office, TV but weirder. Show. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, this is correct because you bring up the Duggars, which is a really interesting point. Because the problem with what the Duggars did, aside from the sex abuse and the scandals and the religious cult, <laughs> aside from all of that, yeah. is uh, and this is an this is an error that a lot of conservatives make. Actually, they reject pop culture because pop culture's influences are bad and destructive. I mean, I reject pop culture for on for my daughter as well. But they forget that while you're shielding a child from that pop culture, you have to still fight in the trenches of pop culture. Otherwise, you're surrendering that whole area to the other side. And so we've created this like alternative uh, culture in very conservative, very Christian circles. And the cost of that is the Kardashians are now this famous in Vanderpump Rules. But I'd probably watch a reality show of a, of a really conservative family. I know growing up, we didn't have scandal like the Kardashians, obviously, because we were normal. But we like to think we
1: were pretty fun and entertaining. I think like if it's a show well done, it would be cool. Sure, and well-educated, conservative, you know, religiously-minded people would be entertaining, right? Like think of reality TV meets GoMo Girls meets conservative values. I would watch that all day long. And I'm tired of, you know, trashy people basically being able to spin off very successful businesses where conservatives tend to have these, these gaps. I mean, I know there are people like... Um, I can't remember the show, but they were like, they made the duck calls and, uh, oh again, yeah. duck Dynasty. The job. No, they, they were duck wildly Dynasty. successful. They were wildly successful. They had some controversial moments. Some, some cast members went through early, early stages of cancel culture. Right. But as far as I know, several of the children have successful brands. They, they are social media influencers. They tend to leave more openly devout Christian. And it's not that I'm opposed to that, but I think that we could have a reality TV show that has conservative values doing kind of things that young conservatives might be interested in doing that uh, has religion without it being all about, because I know that can be sort of uh, isolating to some young people. They want pop culture, but also they don't feel as though they are Christian enough themselves to fully immerse themselves in pop Christian culture.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and the point about the Kardashians, for anybody who missed that episode, it's actually the same point about The Bachelor. These are two of the most famous reality TV Mm -hmm. show franchises in history, and you don't necessarily think of them as conservative, but if you put away like the promiscuous sex and the drug and the divorce and the Kardashians, their opulent lifestyle, they're actually selling this idea of a tight-knit family where sisters are best friends and they're always having... You know, yeah. birth announcements and gender reveals and birthday parties and weddings and engagement, all these things that young women specifically, who are the primary demographic that watches their show, really want. The same with The Bachelor. I mean, The Bachelor's gotten pretty salacious. It's it's a lot more like a drunk frat house now than it used to be. But the idea of it is what young women want, that they want to find Mr. Wright, get engaged, have a fairy tale proposal and a wedding. Um, I think it would be great. Okay, yeah. my next controversial opinion. This is the one that light, whenever I post on X, formerly known as Twitter about this, it lights it up. RIP Twitter. My opinion is marijuana is dangerous and it should be illegal. Am I wrong? Ooh, this is so
1: interesting. I don't know. I think in our, there are parts of society right now where yes, it's totally dangerous. It's, you know, we've got the argument that it's not that it's not addictive, but it is habit forming people. Uh, base their entire social lives and their their habits, their health around marijuana. I am skeptical of big pharma. And so there is a part of me that would like to see marijuana explored in sort of a potentially uh, me- for medical use, right? But recreational marijuana is, I think, ultimately a dangerous route. Uh, I don't know that I would make it totally illegal, though, because I want to see it studied. I don't know that I trust, you know, Purdue to be whipping up whatever they want in the lab when I would like to see potentially more holistic or more natural options on the market. Theoretically, I agree with you. I don't trust big
2: pharma and I'd like to see more plant-based things. My mind has totally changed on this topic. If you'd asked me this five years ago, I would have taken a very, a very libertarian stance. I would have been like, well, I mean, it's not like meth, right? It's not like fentanyl. True. Like if people want to be potheads. I don't endorse that. I think it's a waste of life, but whatever. Like, how is it different than alcohol? Like, kind of like the classic no. conservative libertarian position. But then I read Alex Berenson's book. You guys all know Alex Berenson. We talked to him a ton um, about his reporting on COVID. But before he wrote on COVID, he wrote a book about marijuana. And the premise of this book is he's married to an emergency room physician who would come home and tell him that her... Uh, basically psychotic patients were all on marijuana and that there was definitely a link between psychosis and marijuana. And he scoffed at her to the point that he was like, I'm gonna do the research, I'm gonna dig into here and I'm gonna prove you wrong. And what he did Mm -hmm. is he accidentally proved himself wrong. He dived into all these studies and he found there are links between marijuana use and psychosis, psychotic breaks, between marijuana use and schizophrenia, between marijuana Mm -hmm. use and violent crime, really, really horrendous stuff. And these studies have been completely discarded by the medical community, not because they're wrong, but because the medical marijuana lobby stands to profit if marijuana was normalized first as a medical remedy versus just Mm -hmm. recreational. And so once I saw those studies, I couldn't unsee them. And I was like, well, if this is as dangerous as these studies show, then it should be regulated the same way that meth is
1: and that fentanyl is. Yeah. And it is interesting. I I think research is the key to most things. And unfortunately, we don't get accurate numbers. And schizophrenia, especially for young men, tends to hit in their late teens or early 20s. And that tends to be, I'm totally going anecdotally here, but when people start using marijuana the most, right? So people who are at risk of a schizophrenic break it would bear out would be adversely more at risk if they started using marijuana, but they're never informed of these risks because we don't tend to acknowledge it. And I will say, I grew up in a rural part of uh, Connecticut and I I had great upbringing, it's a nice area, but uh, our school nurse told me after I graduated that the number one issue that they battled was uh, heroin addiction, which is not completely uncommon. I went to school with like less than 400 kids, it was very small, but. One of the big issues was that marijuana was less uh, or that heroin was less expensive than marijuana in the area a lot of the time. Uh, And that has to do with like drug trafficking and stuff like that. And so if you, you know, are a depressed teenager, which how could you not be in today's America where you're told that, you know, you'll never be able to buy a house, you'll never be able to do anything. Uh. I don't think that making marijuana recreational would necessarily stop you from potentially going for the next big high. And that's the danger. Uh, I I don't, I don't like to simplify it to marijuana is the gateway drug, but uh, it opens the door for not dealing with your mental health issues and potentially moving on to more abuse and more substance uh, dependency. Yeah, that's
2: an interesting point, actually, because there's Always the intentional implications of a policy and the unintended implications of a policy. And maybe one of the unintended implications of um, illegalizing it would be basically more trafficking, which means that it can be laced with something else. I don't know.
0: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: Okay, your next controversial opinion.
1: Lay it on us. Okay, well, it's sort of a question because I am not Catholic, but I ask all my favorite Catholics this. I don't understand why Catholic priests can't get married. It just seems bizarre to me and seems to not be a strength of the church. And I'm always looking for clarification. I don't know if you have an opinion on this.
2: I would love to give my opinion on this. Actually, one of my controversial opinions is on religion as well. So the reason Catholic priests can't be married is because, it's the same reason that a married man can't be married to more than one woman. Because when you are married to someone, you are supposed to dedicate your whole being to the service of that person, to sanctify that person, to make them holy. So like my husband is married to me and no one else, a Catholic priest has dedicated his life to essentially being married to the church, to serve that church. We also know in the gospels that young people are told, if they can, to stay chaste and to stay single in service of God. And it's borne out. It's borne out in over now two millennia that this has been um, the way the church has done it. And this has been a good thing. Now you can make arguments. And I know that this is a very common argument from Protestants and evangelicals. Well, what about when these men aren't having sex? Doesn't this drive them towards sex abuse? Doesn't this drive them towards homosexuality in seminaries? And I don't think that bears out. I don't think, uh, I don't think if you remain a virgin or you're celibate, it drives you to be a child sex abuser. I don't think that there's a connection there. Yeah. I do think that there is a discernment process that the church has neglected in selecting candidates for the priesthood who struggle with these things prior to entry into seminary that could probably eliminate a lot of the problems. And I think that what used to happen in Catholic church is there, is there used to be a community of priests that would live together, Um, So you always had community, you were never lonely, you were never on your own, but because there's such a priest shortage now, especially parish priests oftentimes live in an apartment by themselves, so they lack that community, which again, I'm not saying that living by yourself and being lonely drives you to horrible sex crimes, but there is an element of community that serves as a bulwark against, against evil. So you'll have to count me as a traditionalist on Catholic priests being married. I can't picture honestly, as a, as a lifelong Catholic, I can't picture some of the most are some of the holiest, most influential priests. Like they're busy dawn to dusk. Like Mm -hmm. they would have to cut their ministry in half in a third. If they also had the primary duty of providing for their family and protecting their wife and children. So I don't know if that's as detailed of an answer as you're looking for, but that one, I do have to fall
1: with the church on this. No, I think it's so interesting. I asked, um, Shane Coughlin of Freeman Freedom Tunes, a similar question. He basically said, you know, they don't have the time, you know, they're devoted to the church and that's, that's where their priority needs to be. And I grew up Episcopalian. So I'm familiar with Catholicism. I have Catholic family members. I, I'm happy to, I mean, it's not a question of the Catholic church, but it is a cultural, um, it's a specific part of the Catholic Church that I have always been really interested in, especially because we know that fewer men are seeking the priesthood. And I think it's so interesting to hear that you point towards discernment, which is again similar to a conversation I had with uh, my, you know, Irish Catholic from Chicago, Seamus Coughlin, because I I think that is something that people lack in all parts of their life right now. They are there are so many people who are are unsure of their direction. And one of the the uh, priest at the Catholic church that my, my family attends now, uh, is brilliant, interesting. I could definitely understand where, you know, he's pretty young, there's isolation. And he talks about having to decide, uh, between, you know, this wonderful girlfriend he had and this calling that he felt. And I think it is interesting as much as I, uh, am, I, I always go back and forth on it because again, I grew up with priests that could get married and could have families. And I felt there was a value and. Uh, living through the phases of life that your parishioners were also going through, I can see how being a representation of sacrifice and uh, this calling are actually something that we're sort of uh, hungry for as a culture. And so it's not something that I, you know, I'm not going to topple the Catholic Church over it. I just never totally understood it because it seems like there are other options, especially when you're trying to recruit recruit young Catholics.
2: I understand that. I think one of the reasons the Catholic Church is struggling with the the vocations meaning young men aren't discerning the priesthood mm-hmm. is not because young men want to be married i think young people are actually getting married in the smallest numbers ever before yeah. since it's been recorded i don't think that it has even to do with the decision like oh if i'm a priest i'm not going to have sex if i'm married i'll be able to have sex mm-hmm. i don't think it's that i think it's that the catholic church has been negligent in their catechesis they have not fostered faith in the younger generations. And it is a huge sacrifice. I mean, it's a calling, it's a vocation, it's a wonderful thing to be a priest, but it is a a lifestyle that only a minority of people in our country choose to do, choose to commit to. And you have to be so alive in your faith and so surrounded by a solid faith community to even lead you to the point that, that, that you can envision that as a reality or that you can hear that calling that I would say and this is just this is just my opinion thinking about this um that is where I would say the Catholic Church has been negligent in in trying to foster those va- vocations not because young men are like oh shoot I just really wanted to have sex but as a priest you can't
1: I could be wrong though sure sure I don't know I think there is something to be said I don't know that it's about uh whether or not they can have sex I think it's more about the sacrifice. And I see this spirit born out in other things. I mean, there are so many women who say, well, I'm not gonna have children. I wanna put it off because I want to be selfish. I don't wanna to have to sacrifice.
0: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: I think there is uh, an aversion to personal discomfort in the pursuit of something greater. And so, in that sense, I could see it, you know, one of the reasons that having a strong priest in your community who has made that choice, and maybe you're not discerning the priesthood, maybe you're just you know, discerning what to do with your life and there might be sacrifice involved is a good role model. Uh, It was one of the things that I found interesting for a while. I knew a lot of people who were uh, raised either, you know, Catholic, Christian, maybe nothing, and they were all pursuing Eastern Orthodoxy. And I found this really interesting because I, often they told me one of the things I like is that the priests can have children and that they are, you know, they, they are encouraged to get married because then they are living out the life that, uh, their community is experiencing, they they are parenting alongside other people and that they're aware of those challenges. And I felt similarly growing up in an Episcopalian church. I mean, our priest, I think his son was on my brother's little league team. And so uh, I didn't just see him at church. I saw him in my community, but I could see, you know, the Catholic priest that my family, you know, goes to now. He definitely just has, goes to all the Christmas party. He's around all the time. So and like everything, life is what you make of it. It is, and I think that that might be a difference in perspective from, an, from a Protestant viewpoint,
2: a Catholic viewpoint too. Is that Protestants view their uh, their ministers as a pastor, right? It's it's a leader mm-hmm. of the community. He's there to uh, preach sermons, to guide, to counsel. And Catholic priests are viewed a little bit differently. They're not there just to be living the same life beside you. They actually are holy. They're set apart. Yeah, they're supposed to be different than parishioners because they're supposed to act in persona Christi, which is as God's representative on earth, especially during the sacrifice of the mass. So maybe that's somewhat of the difference um, as well. There actually are a couple of married Catholic priests. Um, Father Dwight Longenecker, I don't know if you know him, he's active on conservative Twitter. He was a Protestant minister or an evangelical Priest or some some other denomination, some other Christian denomination, he converted to Catholicism, and that's the one exception the Catholic Church allows. If you were a, a priest in another Christian religion, you convert to Catholicism, you're allowed to um, receive holy orders mm-hmm. and become a Catholic priest. And so he's one of the few married priests, which, to me, coming from the, a different background um, than you on this, is strange to me. Like it's hard for me to picture a priest as being See, married. I, like, they're I'm so approaching used to our not. priests. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) um, okay, okay, let's move along to the next one, although this is is really interesting. We'll come back to religion in a minute because one of my next ones is about religion. But first, this is my next controversial opinion that indoctrination in public schools is not bad. Conservatives often say, oh, it's in a center of indoctrination that's bad. I don't think that that's bad. I think we should be indoctrinating children with the public school system. I think that whether indoctrination is a bad thing or a good thing depends on what is being indoctrinated. And I think something will always be indoctrinated in the public school system. It's never going to be a neutral playing field. So I think as conservatives, we should take advantage of this. Use the institution of the public schools to indoctrinate students in American values and Christian
1: values. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I think you're totally right. There's no way to have a neutral public school. I mean, compare this to France, where they're, uh, you know, they have, they're a secular country. So they have basically freedom from religion. And they are struggling to keep up with all of the dress code regulations, because obviously, they have a growing Muslim population. And so if you're not allowed to wear a cross to school, you're not allowed to, allowed to wear a yarmulke, you obviously can't wear a headscarf to school to abide by the country's original founding. Uh, in America, I think, I would be, I think indoctrination is a scary word. And there are things that I would obviously be opposed to kids learning in public schools. uh, But taking out, you know, let's say gender theory or different things just leaves a vacuum for something else to fill. And that's why I would love to see... uh, indoctrination, so to speak, although I don't, I wouldn't qualify it as indoctrination for more patriotic feelings, right? I mean, Oklahoma just okayed PragerU introducing some of their curriculum as like supplemental material. And I love that. I think that there is this uh, desire, especially among, you know, that middle school to high school age bracket, it's just developmentally normal for them to be seeking purpose, to do, to be uh, figuring out who they are as individuals, what their values are. And I would love for them to be surrounded by uh, Christian values or just, pro-America values, values that say that this is a good country and that you are surrounded by uh, optimism and people who are encouraging you, rather than, you know, what tends to be victimhood, anti-America. These are all the things that our founders did wrong. This is why you're weird. This is why, no, like, unless you pick out crazy pronouns, no one will like you. I mean, it's a very uh, part of, a very trying time for a young adolescents. And if we were indoctrinating them with encouragement and hope, I would be for it. Unfortunately, I just don't think that it's, likely to happen in this country. I think we have a lot of powers that be that will not cede the public schools. And that's why ultimately you're going to see a continued rise in homeschooling and alternative schooling. And it's why the school choice movement is so important, because if your public school is never going to be neutral, you should find a school that is, like you're saying, uh, indoctrinating them with values that will give them a positive and healthy lifestyle. And by the way, you will find no bigger proponent of homeschooling than me. I think everyone, if you possibly
2: can, homeschool your children. If you can make it yeah. work by any means, homeschool your children. They'll be better off. I also, I just think we should take back the word indoctrination. Like, it is not an inherently bad word. A lot of people feel like recoil. They recoil when they hear it. And we should just like reclaim mm-hmm. that. We should say, no, indoctrination is literally just teaching some someone something right from wrong. Like,
1: okay, that's great. Let's yeah. use that. Um, let's take that word back and I take it away from the, the left. Yeah, that's how I feel about the word hate crime. I just feel like I should be able to use it for anything I don't like. Because it just doesn't make any (laughs) sense. You hate it, what are you talking about? You don't know what my motivations are. So indoctrinations and hate crime, we'll reclaim the words. We'll reclaim both of them. Okay, hit us with your next controversial opinion. Okay, I think I wrote a whole long list. It's hard to decide. Um, I think that what happened at Burning Man over this last weekend is God testing the pagans. We're going to stick to my semi-religious theme here. I think it is so fascinating that there was this storm that apparently no one predicted uh, at the big event with all of the anarchists and the pagans who have uh, the, what was it, the Cathedral of Babel, right? That they are are trying to promote an anti-Christian viewpoint. And instead, they got flooded and tens of thousands of people got stuck in the mud with dwindling food and resources. Obviously, human suffering is bad. I don't encourage it. But you chose to be at a pagan, semi-anarchist event that's also filled with elitists. I I wonder if God is trying to send you a message. Let's just say I wouldn't be opposed
2: to it if that were the case. I think that our God is a God of mercy and a God of justice. It seems to me. Who am I to define justice? But it seems to me that that would be relatively just. I mean, literally a an altar to a pagan god. I mean, you are asking for the proverbial strike of lightning.
1: For sure. And also, you know, perhaps he was protecting them from themselves, right? He made it so it was a oh. very difficult event to carry out. Why would he do that if it wasn't for an act of mercy? Um I I think community events are interesting and I'm I don't I try not to be too uh your culture is bad and mine is better. You know, who am I to say except I'm right? Uh but I think God doesn't like Burning Man. And I think he made that very clear. <laughs> I think we should leave that one right there.
2: I agree with you 100%. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it like that, although I did laugh. I think we did a segment on the show earlier in the week where I kind of laughed. I was like, well, as long as people aren't actually, I think there were a few people that lost their lives and I'm sorry about that. I'm not trying to laugh at that. That's tragic. No, but that's not- overall, 70,000 people there, it wasn't an overall deadly event. It was a little funny to see these uh, drug addicts and,
1: I, and sex orgies disrupted by mud. And these tickets are thousands of dollars, right? Like this isn't just like a community event where we hang out. Like it's for super wealthy people who want to cosplay as pagans for a while. Like, I'm sorry, but I just don't think that like this is the event that probably its founders wanted it to be, which maybe God is happy about that. I would hope, you would hope he, he would be. Okay, here's my next one, and
2: this one is, this one I diverge a little bit from conservatives on. I know that this is, this is actually a traditionally a more leftist opinion, although post-COVID, I think more conservatives are uh, have opened their eyes to this and liberals have maybe become more dogmatic towards technocracy, so maybe they're moving away. But up until a couple of years ago, this was a more leftist opinion. Here it is. The CDC's recommended childhood vaccine schedule is both dangerous and largely
1: unnecessary. Am I wrong? Well, this is the thing that I thought would happen, so I'd be like, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, I will say, if you said that to any one of my uh, young progressive mom friends, they would have a heart attack uh, because why would the CDC lie to them? You know, I I want to be open to the history of vaccines, right? Smellpox seems very bad. I know polio, that was a negative, right? There are things that vaccines theoretically cured, but um, I don't really understand why children have to have this like insane amount of vaccinations, especially, so I'm based out of West Virginia. West Virginia is one of five states in the country that you can't get a religious exemption. And so to go to public school, which you have to send your kid to school you have to vaccinate your child, which is complete coercion. Uh, I don't really understand why this is necessary. So I wouldn't say you're wrong, but I would say there are a lot of people who would feel as though you are trying to actively harm children by saying that. Oh, and that's certainly the case. That's what everyone says every time
2: I bring this up, because I've been open about the fact that I didn't think about this too much until my daughter until I was pregnant with my daughter. My daughter's two and a half. So I was thinking about this about three years ago. I decided to do my own research because even before COVID, I was a skeptic of big pharma and the collusion between the CDC and the FDA. So I was doing my research on, are all 70 shots recommended for children necessary? Can't we like base this on individual risk, both individual risk of the disease and individual risk um, of of the vaccine? Because it seems to me that a child living in a tent in Africa is at a very different risk for certain diseases than my daughter, who lives in suburbia, upper middle class suburbia, with access to fresh water, yeah. food, nutrition, medical care, a hospital. Like the risks are very different. So why are we? Why do we have this blanket schedule for even even just in the United States for every single child in the United States, the recommendation is the same? And the for deeper sure. I dug into it, the more that I realized that at least uh, a large percentage of these vaccines that are recommended the COVID playbook wasn't new, that a lot of the data behind these studies and the risk of the disease weren't accurately portrayed and aren't accurately portrayed to parents. And they use fear-mongering, oh, you're gonna kill your child if you don't comply with this. And it's it was one of the hardest decisions that I make, deciding what we would ultimately do, what my husband and I would ultimately do with her, because it feels like a lose-lose. If you don't give some vaccines, are you gonna harm them? If you do give some vaccines, are you gonna harm them? Um, and my conclusion was, I I did a whole thread on this on X, formerly known as Twitter, um, about all the books. I read like 20 books on this, um, and I did a whole thread showing people exactly what books that I read, and I highly recommend that any current parent or future potential parent read them because I I don't want to call myself an anti-vaxxer, although uh, labels like that no longer bother me. It's kind of like being called a conspiracy theorist, but my Mm -hmm. views have definitely changed on whether they're all safe and necessary.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe uh, anti-vaxxers should go on or reclaim the li- the word list because I think maybe being anti-vaccine <laughs> is a good choice, right? I mean, you're totally right. Why would we have 70 vaccinations that every kid in the Amer- in America is supposed to have while they're simultaneously telling us that certain, you know, in underprivileged kids don't have the same access to nutrition, so that they're uh, at risk of different things. I mean, ki- kids who grow up in cities are more prone to asthma. There are all kinds of differences, uh, both socioeconomically and regionally, environmentally, that kids are exposed to. I think the what makes me the most irritated is, and I'm, I'm sure you experienced this, uh, is that parents aren't respected in this. I don't have any children, but I have younger siblings. Yeah. And if you chose not to give your daughter one vaccine or any vaccines or whatever it is, often you won't be able to, from what I know, work with certain pediatricians. They'll be like, well, you can't be our patient. They'll deny uh, access to medical care based on vaccines that I'm pretty sure they profit off of giving you, right? I mean, it doesn't make yes. sense to me why they're able to strong you into doing something when they don't see your child all the time. Like I I am happy to acknowledge that I am not a medical doctor. And I think there is a place in the world for people with more expertise on issues than I do. but. They don't know anything except for what they see in the what 10 minutes you're at the doctor's office. They don't know how your child eats. They don't get to observe them. If there were to be any adverse effect from any of the vaccines, you would be the first person to see it because you're with your child. Uh, it, it seems like lazy medicine to me. It seems like we are selling things and we are not thinking about the patients and we are hurting and blaming parents because obviously there are well- intentioned parents who try to know as much as they can, who don't have the capacity to do the research that you did. And so they'll say, I trust my doctor. My doctor wouldn't lead me astray. My doctor wouldn't put their bottom line above my child. But isn't that what doctors do all the time? And that's not to be mean to all doctors. That's how their system works. It's not meant to actually empower people to pursue health on their own. It's meant to make people comply so that everyone feels like they are getting the same amount of money at a certain point.
2: Yeah, and listen, there's no one on earth more critical of pediatricians than me. I fired my first pediatrician because he was essentially bullying me about making decisions about breastfeeding and co-sleeping and vaccines. So degrading. Tried to get me to sign a document saying I was endangering my child, and I was just like, you're fired. However, I will say, not every pediatrician is like that. The problem is that they're actually not educated about the vaccines themselves are about the disease. They're just told, this is the schedule, here's how you administer it. Mm-hmm. And they're told the same talking points that parents are. So you walk in there and you try to have this discussion with a pediatrician, they they aren't trying to hide information from you. They just aren't taught it in medical schools because medical schools are co-opted by Big Pharma and the FDA yeah. and the CDC, that whole um, conglomeration. Um, okay, hit me with your next controversial opinion.
1: Okay, I think that seltzer water, water is garbage. And I do not understand why people drink it. Oh, I'm going to have
2: to rate this one a total zero out of 10. <laughs> Aunt I live on. Is this on. our first fight Oh my gosh. Look, look what I have sitting next to me right now. Look at this. This you isn't even LaCroix. A I'm gonna... This isn't even an ad. I, it's a soda stream. I make my own sparkling
1: water in my kitchen every day so that I can drink it. Hi, it's so here. delicious. What? isn't carbonation supposed to be terrible for your teeth shouldn't we be moving away from fizzy beverages altogether i think this is one of these things that it it was like just a trend i think this is something that people were like oh my friend drinks this and it's good and it's kind of like soda but it's healthy and so we all people pretend to like it but no one actually likes it they just think it's like a healthier alternative it's like when you say something is gluten-free people are like oh that makes it healthy and you're like no that's not actually (laughs) what that means I mean, I actually do like it, but I don't drink
2: soda to be fair. I don't drink soda, I eat pretty clean. So adding a little okay. fruit juice to sparkling water actually does make it taste good to me. Um, I have heard, and this is an argument against what I do, I have heard that sparkling water actually wrecks your electrolyte balance. I'm not sure how, I didn't like look into it further than that, but I have heard that it's not as healthy as drinking regular water. But that has yet to stop me, yet to stop me until my, until look, my soda have- stream breaks. <laughs>
1: We all have our vices, right? And I will say it's one of these things that I think is on the market to create other problems because I'm so skeptical behind a uh, seltzer water lobby. I think that it throws off your electrolytes. I totally believe it. If it hurts your teeth, I believe it, but it's a product that they present as if it's healthy. And they say, and this happens to so much of our food, that this is something that you can have and it's nice and whatever else, uh, of course, everything you do in life has risk. I'm I'm not going to shame you about your disgusting choice of beverage. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) But I think that this is something that was collective group think because I worked in this office at one point and we'd have a snack closet. And all of these people would be like, I love LaCroix. I love the coconut water LaCroix. No, that's, that's terrible. Why would you drink that? And yet we all do it because we think it's a thing that people do. I don't know, man.
2: Yeah, I will say coconut is gross in anything and everything, and it should be eliminated from as a flavor from all foods. Cannot stand coconut. Okay, this is my final controversial opinion of the day. This is back to religion. I think all
1: Christians should be Catholic. Ooh, interesting. I mean, Catholics like get extra points in heaven when you convert people, right? So that that makes sense to me. That you would that be your opinion? (laughs) I'm just teasing. Uh, I'm just teasing. I'm aware of. I've been a, I, I wish.
2: I, I wish. Actually, that would be great. Um, well, you don't. Know, no, here's the God, reason I think all Christians. Sh- yeah, you would never know. I mean, hopefully, you would just have the gratification of of helping a soul get to heaven. Um, here's the, here's why I say this. I don't say this to like to trigger Protestants and Evangelicals. I say this because I believe, as a Catholic, that the Catholic religion is the true interpretation of the Bible, the true interpretation of the Church that Jesus Christ established on Earth, and my biggest issue with Protestant evangelical doctrine. And I know that there's nuances with different denominations, but my biggest issue is in the gospel of John, when Jesus is talking about he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And it seems to me that Protestants and evangelicals dismiss this. They don't view it as being literal, which Jesus did when he was teaching his disciples, Mm -hmm. because some of them were revulsed by it, walked away, and he didn't correct them, which he would have had he Um, meant it symbolically, and Protestants and evangelicals oftentimes dismiss the historical context of such a statement being literal, because if you look at the Jewish traditions at the time, especially the Passover lamb, which is what Jesus was, the new Passover lamb, part of Passover, like Passover wasn't complete until you ate the flesh of the Passover lamb. So Jesus being the new Messiah and the fulfillment of the new manna and the fulfillment of, of all of these Jewish prophecies, of course was going to be in alignment with what Jews religious experiences and religious traditions at the time were. So I feel like Protestants, even evangelicals, are missing a huge part of what Jesus offers us to know him and love him and serve him by not interpreting this correctly, but I'm interested to hear as because you're a, you're a Protestant evangelical, I'm interested
1: to hear your response to this. Uh, yeah, well, I I never even knew. I guess now I would consider myself. I don't even think I'd be considered a uh, new evangelical because I I grew up Anglican, so I grew up like Church of England, which is obviously okay. more related to the Catholic like Church. Like very, very classic Protestant then. Right, right, and so you know. Christianity is so interesting. I obviously believe deeply in Christianity. I am a Christian today. I I go to church. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this, that I have, uh, Catholic family members. My stepmom, who I'm extremely close to is Catholic. And you know, I are at Christmas, I am at Catholic mass. And that exposure to Catholicism has been really interesting to me, uh, because I haven't converted. So I guess I disagree with you, but I think Catholicism is strong in a way that, uh, Protestantism and even the evangelical movement as it is in modern America is not. I think that there is a culture and there is a, a, a richer text that they're able to offer that will ultimately make it so that most Americans in in the U.S., more, more Americans in the U.S. convert to Catholicism, in my opinion. That, that's my prediction. Maybe that's my hot take for you. Um, I found it really interesting that with growing up Anglican, and again, we, you know, The mass is just much more similar than if you were to go to just your, you know, Baptist church or anything else, um, that still the church lost people. And they also uh, were much more open to progressive ideology than any other uh, than the Catholic church was. And I think that's a weakness. So my example here is always that the Church of England is. consistently taking really progressive stances on issues like gay marriage and the issues of having a potentially, you know, transgender or transgender identifying people in the clergy or serving in the church in some way. And uh, that obviously goes against doctrine. And I think part of it is because the Anglican church doesn't have a strong culture to back it up the way Catholicism does. Uh, so I don't know if everyone should be a Catholic. I feel like I can't commit to that opinion until I myself convert. But I will say, <laughs> I think more, I think Catholicism has so much to gain that it is almost inevitable to me that more people are drawn to the religion. I mean. I you can maybe name some Anglican Episcopal schools, they exist, but they are not as structured as, as basically Catholic schools. And then if you're in certain regions of the country, uh Mormon institutions tend to be very community-based. They have strong networks. And uh I would pick Catholicism over Mormonism. So
2: Yeah, I I think that's interesting. I also think the reason that a lot of Protestants and evangelicals are not just not Catholic, but anti-Catholic, is because there was a concerted effort in our country specifically over the past 200 years to um, brand Catholicism as things it is not. So there's a lot of mis. Mm-hmm. Like most, most of the time, when I'm talking to a Protestant or Evangelical friend, and they're making accusations against Catholicism, it's a misunderstanding. They say, "Oh, you worship you worship Mary." No, we don't. You worship mm-hmm. saints. No, we don't. You you know you believe that good works can get you to heaven. No, we don't. It's it's very mm-hmm. uh, elementary misunderstandings of Catholic doctrine, which, in my opinion, was more or less of a political campaign to a political campaign to make sure for Protestants in this country to make sure that they didn't convert to Catholicism. Uh, maybe we'll have to do a whole episode on religion sometime because it 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 sounds like it could be an you. interesting episode.
1: We're almost out of time, but I, hit me with your very last controversial opinion. OK, well, my controversial opinion is that Taylor Swift ultimately represents uh, femininity and she doesn't want to, but that's the way it is. And our culture craves that. Uh, and I, I uh, wrote an op-ed about this for Timcast a couple weeks ago. I think that her entire career is based on uh, traditionally female values and virtues. And she plays feminist when it'll make her money or my personal I wish this was true uh, to get feminist moms to let their daughters listen to her music, right? So she, I'm not just writing about boys. I'm denouncing the patriarchy. Um, I, I think, you know, I grew up with Taylor Swift's music around. We're similar ages. She was just on the radio. Even if you were not hunting out her stuff, she was around. And uh, she talks about love. Her her music is about friendship and relationship. She's obviously very perceptive, very detail-oriented. These are very feminine traits. Uh, and she is consistently talking about getting married, having children. And I think that's good. I think this idea that uh, all female pop artists are ultimately drawn to feminism is only true on the surface. And if you look at what they are saying underneath, they are preaching, they're screaming, they're singing that they want a traditional life. They want to be married. They want to find love.
2: Yeah, I think you're 100% correct in this. I would call Taylor Swift accidentally authentic. So even if she Mm -hmm. doesn't think that she's a traditional woman or a feminine woman or Um, She was trying to listen to what she wanted, her own desires, so authentically that she accidentally portrayed a traditional conservative version of womanhood, the true version of womanhood. And it's only her uh, mind that's been captured by the ideology that's like, wait, isn't there some contradiction in this? But how can it be contradictory when this is what I'm authentically feeling, but this is what the politics tell me to believe? I think you're correct. And I think, I mean, isn't this one of the reasons why her Eras tour is so successful because this, like the Kardashians, is what young women want to
1: hear. Yeah, and I think that was one of the interesting things about her music was that she was releasing music about a period of time that she just went through. Right, so her audience, who grew up alongside her, hear their own heartbreak or confusion or their own desires to find a life partner or whatever else. Like these very authentic, real things that women feel uh, instead of being told, you know, ignore them, pursue your career, be really tough, be be brittle, be be like a man uh we had a pop star that all along was telling us being uniquely feminine feminine is good and by the way she made a ton of money off of doing this and she's going to continue to be successful because she is selling what in a lot of women's hearts they acknowledge to be one of the big challenges of their life finding someone to marry and start a family with that's right that's right see i th- i don't even know why i call these controversial opinions these all
2: are perfectly sane and rational opinions um, that we what are. This was I, really fun. Hannah Claire,
1: where can, where can people find you if they want to follow you online? They can find me on Twitter, what I guess is now called X. I'm HC uh, Brimolo and I'm on Instagram at hannahclaire.b And I of course really want to direct them to timcast.com. If you click on our read tab, you see my work and you see work from the other awesome journalists here. I'm really lucky to be a part of this company, especially because I got to meet you through it all. So thank you so much for having That's me. That's right.
2: That's how we became friends. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This was really fun. Guys, go to TimCast.com. Click on Hannah Claire Brimlow's work. Follow her on X, formerly known as Twitter, and on Instagram. Thanks for being here. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show.
0: plus.